Frank Buckley Interviews is presented by the Mercedes-Benz Dealers of Southern California. Hey there, it's Frank Buckley. Today our guest is a comedian and an actress. It's Amy Hill, who you've seen in a million things like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, The Great Indoors, and All-American Girls. She often plays the mom or the grandmother. Now she's trying her hand at stand-up comedy with a group of fellow Asian-American comedians in a series they're calling Comedy Invasion, happening at the Japanese-American National Museum in downtown L.A. Amy's performance is happening this Sunday, February 26th. I will have a link to the event on my podcast page, which is ktla.com slash interviews if you're interested in attending. Amy and I have something in common. We're both half Japanese. Our moms are both Japanese. We've both lived in Japan and we both speak Japanese. So some of our conversation is about that. We're also going to talk about Amy's career and her life and how she feels about the state of diversity in Hollywood and specifically about how Asian Americans are portrayed on TV and in the movies. Here's my conversation with Amy Hill. I hope you enjoy it. Amy, welcome my Hafu sister. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you, my Hafu brother. <laughs> it's great. We're both children of Japanese mothers and uh, Caucasian fathers. Uh, we're going to get into how that informs your comedy and your acting and, and you know what role that plays in your life journey uh, during our conversation. But I want to begin with your career. And we talked about this on the TV show a few moments ago, but your IMDb site says that you have nearly 160 credits as an actress. Yes. And that's just, uh, you know, it doesn't count. <laughs> it doesn't count the number of episodes. That's crazy. It's just the shows. And when you got into this, did you think that will be my life someday or Tell me, take me back to the moment when you thought, you know, I think I want to be an actress. Um, how old were you and what were your expectations then? Well, I was, uh, I was raised in Seattle. I was born in Deadwood, South Dakota. So mm -hmm. out of just desperation, I did a lot of uh, performing by myself. I did all the characters. I did all the sets. I did everything by myself. Uh -huh. And then when I moved to Seattle, um, you know, so I felt like an outsider. So I used my imagination a lot and I performed for the neighbors. And how old were you then? Uh, I moved at six and um, I didn't, I really thought that I would just perform for my neighbors for the rest of my life. I thought that was a good gig. Yeah. <laughs> sure. They were laughing. Nobody I'm complained. Sure. <laughs> the, the price was right. Yeah. But. Um, well, back up for a second. Yeah. Why did you feel like an outsider? Because I was half. My mom was Japanese and she was Japanese, like from Japan, like your mom. Yeah. And I was, ra I was in a, a neighborhood that was a mostly Caucasian. We were near the only two temples in Seattle. So it was very Jewish. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, they brought matzah crackers with butter. Right. And I had niche is sushi. Right. I, I was, I was very odd. Mm. So. Because it's not, not only are you, um, half but you i mean to look at you and and again to look at me same thing people look at me and go you're half japanese they think you know latino or exactly. something else uh, yeah. you know italian whatever right but when i tell them japanese they're they're sort of shocked and mm -hmm. you know with a name like buckley and right. you have uh, a name Hill. that's not exactly <laughs> japanese no. either no. 
Um, so I, I can sort of relate to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I felt like an outsider. And I yeah. think if people thought I was, a, well, there were there was racism too. I remember having a teacher that would literally shudder when I was near her. She Because interracial marriages were not, in my generation, uh, looked on fondly. Mm, right. It was still, I think, illegal in many states. Yeah, to, in the, until the know, late 60s. Exactly. So, you know, my parents were not embraced. I think in some way, though, being in a community of of people who uh, whose relatives had experienced the Holocaust, mm. we were embraced and tolerated a lot. Mm. So I feel kind of lucky to be in that community, being raised there. Yeah. Um, but I still felt like an outsider, mm-hmm. and I just had to, you know, have my own little dreams that were in my head. Yeah, and so you expressed <laughs> yourself through this acting and, and putting yes. on the skits, and, and, and you must have received some sort of level of adulation that made you think, oh, this is kind of nice. In the neighborhood. But when I, by the time I was in high school, I decided, and I remember talent shows yeah. in, in elementary school and thinking, why? how did they get up there? Right. Because nobody told me about any auditions or... Oh. No, it was like a mystery how people got up on stage because I'd watch and think, I could do that. Right. But I didn't know how to get there. Yeah. And my parents certainly weren't involved in any of that. So in high school, I remember gathering up the courage to sign up for drama class. Mm. And it wasn't until I was a freshman. No, was it freshman, sophomore, junior? So sophomore. It was my second year of high school. And uh, I was terrified, and I did the first exercise, because I was always very good at, you know, doing whatever anybody told me to do. So I did the exercise as best as I could, and the teacher was uh, so laudatory about what I did. He mm. said, you're so good. Wow. You're wonderful. And I was like, what, I am? And he's, his support, Mr. Nicholas, mm-hmm. <laughs> his support meant the world to me. It changed my life. It so changed I, your life. And changed. Mr. Nicholas, uh, and what, what school is this? Franklin High School in Seattle. Very diverse, wonderful school. We had the highest SAT scores and drive-bys. Oh. It was a great oh, inner wow. city school in Seattle. Yeah. But uh, because of him, I was in... From that point on, I was in every high school uh, play. I did mostly serious things, yeah. but I did do some comedy. But I thought of myself as a serious actor. Mm. And I remember telling my friends that I needed to suffer for my art. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably had times where you did, got to. I did. I suffered a lot. And then I remember one time going, you know, I've suffered enough. I'm done. <laughs> That, it's amazing how a moment like that mm-hmm. uh, transforms you, and and I wonder what when you went into that performance or the exercise, did you feel like I think I can do this? I I think I am good at this, or were you completely vulnerable and and unaware of, of your own talent? Oh, I was totally unaware of my own talent. I remember the exercise was. Uh, you had to be, uh, so you were your neutral self, and then he said you need to uh, transform into a baby and then go back to your neutral self and then transform yourself into an old person. Mm. So it was like, you know, on stage you're becoming younger and older, and you're, you know, exploring how your body feels and how you're in, you know, your, how your mental state is. And, and I just did the exercise, and I thought, well, this is really cool. Uh-huh. This is I love this. And I just focused on doing it well. And I guess 
I mean, I wasn't trying to show anybody anything or do, I just did the exercise. And that's always been good for me. Uh-huh. When I moved to San Francisco years later, I remember doing sketch comedy. I did improv. I took these improv classes, and I had the best teacher who didn't require you to talk unless you had something to say. Uh So for six months, I don't think I said anything. (laughs) I just did the exercises. If somebody asked me a question, I'd answer, but I never initiated anything. But I did space work. I'd open cabinets. I'd, you know, move things around. I'd vacuum. I'd iron. I did all these things. And I was always in the scene, but I never initiated anything because I had nothing to say. And is it, you had nothing to say because you were afraid to say something? or you no. didn't, Or you just had nothing to say? I just nothing had to nothing add. to say. Because he said that. <laughs> if you don't have anything to say, don't say anything. So I just was in the environment. For six months. For six months, literally. <laughs> and I, when I teach, I tell people... Don't just, you know, don't just vomit words. Yeah. Say something. Right. And in that class, that taught me in my writing to not just vomit Mm -hmm. language, Mm -hmm. to actually think about adding information, bringing the world to the page, not Mm -hmm. just blah, 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 blah. And sometimes when I watch people improvise, I get a little annoyed because they do just sort of talk, talk, talk until something good comes up. Right, right. So it's interesting. I I, I uh, interviewed David Keckner, the uh, great improvisational mm-hmm. actor on on this podcast, and he sort of gave me a lesson in improv, and mm-hmm. I and I had no idea how it worked. Mm-hmm. I, I always thought that it was uh, two actors trying to find something funny to say, and he said that's not it at all. That it's the being the in the truth of the moment of that character, um, is is where the comedy comes out. Exactly. Yeah. So sometimes it is a silent moment. You know, so I would be, I had joined a lot of uh, improv groups in San Francisco, and, and many times I had no idea why people were laughing. Yeah. Because I was just trying to do, because there are little, you know, uh, exercises you do on stage that sort of are performance-based exercises where, you know, like maybe you have a, uh, style of writing that you're supposed to do one word story. Yeah. And so I'll be doing the style. I mean, I don't know most of the writers. I haven't read everything, right. and especially if I'm doing Shakespeare. It's like, ah, <laughs> but I try really hard. And in my trying really hard, the comedy comes out. Yeah. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm right. just trying really hard to do Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe. And I'm not good. But I'll be like, the door opened and everybody's laughing. And I'm thinking, <laughs> But I have to stay in the moment. But in the moment, I'm thinking, what the heck? What, what was funny? <laughs> are they laughing at yeah, me or with they, me? What? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, bridge the gap there. So you're you're um, high school in yes. Seattle, and you you go into Mr. Nichols' class. You mm-hmm. take this exercise. He tells you that you're really good. You have a successful high school acting career era career. <laughs> But, you know, for many people, yeah. that's where it ends, right? right? Or maybe you do a little community theater and then I you did. go work for, you know, IBM or whatever it right. is. You decided what? Well, I had this other dream that I would leave Seattle and uh, create a new character for myself because, you know, as a child, I felt so other. And I thought, you know, what I could do is I could go to France and change my name and uh, become this other person who smoked, uh, you know, French cigarettes and right. drank uh, little glasses of aperitif or something and talked about art and books. Mm-hmm. And I would be cool then. Right. But my mother's Japanese and my dad's Finnish, so they said you can go to Finland or <laughs> Tokyo. And I went, 
Finland. That was so... I couldn't even grasp the idea of what going to What am I going to gonna do in Finland? Yeah, and I tried to find some classes in, in Seattle that taught Finnish because I thought, well, you know, in my 16, 17-year-old brain, if I learned Finnish, yeah. well, that would make sense. Right. So I studied Japanese. Franklin High School offered Japanese classes, mm. so I studied some Japanese, and I got into a school in Tokyo, and I moved there only thinking I would go for a year. Right. And this was during high school or During right high after? school, I applied and I got into Sophia International University in Tokyo. So mm-hmm. right after I graduated from high school, like an idiot, I went to Tokyo. Why was that? What do you say as an idiot? Well, because I never, I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know how to do anything. Yeah. Because my mom's Japanese. Right. They do everything. Of course. So I had to learn how to manage money. I didn't speak Japanese that well. And they didn't have dorms. At Sophia. Oh, my goodness. No. So I had to find an apartment in Japanese. Now you can speak. Back then, you couldn't. No. I could say, Where is the bathroom? Exactly. And then I just watched them as they pointed in different they, directions. <laughs> but eventually, you found a place and I you did. and you found a place. I did. I found a place. I lived in a, a boarding house of sorts. It was a, it's called a gashku, where you have many rooms. You share a bathroom, a toilet, mm-hmm. a toilet, right, and a kitchen, and you have to go to the public um, bathhouse to bathe. Right. So it was quite a shift. Yeah. In my living. Um, and I cried for six months. I cried every day and my parents would call and, and, I'm like, this is so sad. and my dad would say, you know, you could come home. And I'd be like, no, I'm going to stay and stick it out. So I, uh, cried, but I, within six months I was fluent in Japanese. Wow. I was studying like immersion Japanese mm-hmm. at Sophia and I had friends and I finally started making money. I started a, I, I became a, a radio talk show host for a travel show called Amy's Japan. Huh. I tell you, I don't know how things worked out, but they did. What, what radio station wanted, a, 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 they wanted Amy's Japan? TBS came. I happened to be uh, working at the school in the associated student body. And a call came in or a thing came up on the bulletin board saying they were looking for somebody who spoke Japanese badly, uh-huh. me, <laughs> um, who was less than five foot six, or they couldn't be taller than five foot six, and uh, who who was willing to do this talk show travel around the country. And I said, okay, I'll go audition for it. And I did. And fortunately, because I had a little bit of acting background, I was comfortable just sort of ad-libbing mm-hmm. and performing. So I did the audition and they hired me on the spot because my Japanese was sort of good. I mean, it was good enough for people to understand, but it yeah. still sounded like a foreigner. So I got to travel all over the country and just... Talk about my experiences. It was um, it was sponsored by uh, like Chevron. You know, it was one of those gas companies. Uh-huh. Wow, what Kyodo a cool thing! Kyodo Seikyu no Okuri de. This program is Chevron. Yeah, exactly. Koran's sponsor no Tokyo de Okuri. Did you work in Japan too? I did not. Oh. I, I I was there as a little boy, but uh, I I did not. Um, 
No, it did not work. I mean, I've covered right. sadly tragedies there. I've, I've been, oh, I was there for the tsunami and for oh the Colby earthquake and stunning. Yeah, but uh, I've I've never been there to do that kind of work. Right. Although someday maybe. Um, so you, uh, so there's the Japan moment, and I think ironically you sort of start to feel comfortable in your own skin there in Japan. Is yes. that is that right? It's true. You know, what was great was because I never felt like I fit in. Maybe you had the same experience. There were a lot of Japanese, Japanese Americans in my school and Mm -hmm. I sort of hung out with them, but I always felt like I was an outsider Mm -hmm. in that world. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was uh, making, we were in a home ec class and I was partnered with somebody who was Japanese American. We were going to make tempura. Uh And my mother's recipe was so different than hers. And she insisted that hers was authentic. Uh-huh. And I was like, my mom's Japanese. She's from Japan. My mother's. And she, we fought. We literally uh-huh. fought over this. But she dismissed me because I was hapa. Right. And when I moved to Japan, I learned how to speak Japanese. I, I mean, I was married to a Japanese man. I was there for seven years. When mm. I moved to San Francisco... I joined the Asian American Theater Company and I felt like nobody could mess with me because I spoke Japanese. Right. And it was like, you try that. Yeah. You can't even, yeah. So, you know, and people had a lot of respect for me because I spoke Japanese. Right. And I still, in a weird way, I feel more Japanese than I feel Japanese American because wow. part of that, well, I think it's because the camp experience is not, then that is so central i think to most japanese americans mm-hmm. their experience because of their parents or their grandparents experience in the camps you know has bled down to them yeah. and i don't have that i have my mother's war experience yeah which is pretty you know harsh. and let me just back up for a second because mm-hmm. when you say the camp experience just the other day a friend mm-hmm. of our family um who's not japanese or japanese american college educated very bright person, said to my wife, what is Manzanar? Wow. And and it's, I think that, so when we say camps, let's explain. During right. World War II, mm-hmm. 120,000 Japanese Americans, even if you were a quarter Japanese American, so I'm a half, you're a half, my sons would have been sent to camp. So to Japanese, and, and we would have been sent as well. Fully American or with green card, during the beginning of World War II in 1942, sent to internment camps. Mm-hmm. Some call them concentration camps. And they were given days yeah. notice. Right, to sell your business or give it away or lose it, your farm, your you know your life, mm-hmm. uh, all your belongings. And essentially people took a couple of suitcases mm-hmm. and, and suddenly were living in these hastily built barracks in remote places that um, where the cold came in through the, the cracks and uh, people were forced uh, to live humiliating lives. Yeah, they uh, had no privacy. Right. And, they, la- and later, yeah. we should say later, uh, Ronald Reagan as president, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, their reparations and, a, and an official pol- apology um, for the, from the United States government for, for what was this terrible chapter uh, in, in American history. So when you say camps, I just want to make sure everyone understands well, what you're saying. Because growing up, I had these Japanese-American friends, and their parents would talk about camps, and all of us, including the children of these people, thought they were talking about summer camp. Yeah. It wasn't until I was in high school that we found out when they said camp that they were interned. Yeah. 
they were put away. Right. They had lost everything because their families were so ashamed of what had happened to them yeah. that they didn't even want to talk about it. Right, to and a it, culture that, that uh, for which mm-hmm. shame and, and face means everything, mm-hmm. to be told you are not as American as we mm-hmm. are. Uh, where, you know, people have to understand, if you're Japanese and you turn your back on Japan and decide, I'm going to America, mm-hmm. you're all in, you're, well, you know, yeah. because Japan doesn't want you anymore. Right. At least that's the way it was back in the 40s mm-hmm. or 30s or 20s when many of these immigrant immigrants came here. And so to then be told by the, the government and the country that you love, America, that you are less than, that you are not loyal all these things that are very important to the fabric of being mm-hmm. a Japanese American. Um, that's why there is the shame. And I mm-hmm. think that many of those people did not speak of it for years. Mm-hmm. And there is sadly this gap mm-hmm. between the history of Japanese Americans reaching back to their Japanese families. You know, you talk to Italian families here, Irish, you say, Oh yeah, you know, my, my, my cousin, uh, Jimmy in, in Dublin, or, you know, my, you know, Giuseppe in, in Rome or whatever. You talk to many Japanese Americans here. They've never been to Japan. No, they've never been to Japan. I think recently they've started to be more interested in finding or feel, feeling safe to go back and yeah. and uh, you know take pride in their culture. <clears throat> but they also um, nobody spoke Japanese. That's why you know my generation didn't speak Japanese. That's yeah. why when I went to Japan and came back spoke it, speaking Japanese, it was like, haha, I know none of you can. All right. Because they tried so hard. They, you know, they created basketball leagues and bowling yeah. leagues and <laughs> they right. became more American than Americans right. in order to show how not Japanese they were. Yeah. And it was it was just yeah. frowned upon. I, I've heard from many families that to speak Japanese and oh, to to, yeah. to adopt any Japanese customs, which Hopefully that is changing with with the younger generations. Um, back to your career. Oh me! Oh yeah. Back to you, um, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. You you trained there uh, intensively. Yes, I did. I studied uh, at ACT. I also was part of the Asian American Theater Company, which was also transformational because it was all new material that was being written from our experience. Mm -hmm. So I did probably 10 at least, maybe 20 camp plays. So I know, I know about the camp experience. (laughs) I've been in the experience, you know, being a mother, being a mother character or being a wife character or what, you know, whatever it just, it, it, and the whole, like that all, all of those experiences, but I was able to, you know, be involved in telling the Filipino American experience. I've played Filipinos, I've played Chinese, I've played, uh, you know, second generation, first generation. I've directed all of these kinds of shows um, and Korean. I've played Korean, you know, in that generation, it was wonderful to be able to bring our stories. Yeah forward because we weren't seeing our stories told in theater mm-hmm. we weren't, weren't seeing them s- told in um television or film mm-hmm. so you know it really gave us a lot of a sense of power over our our experiences and lives you when do you make the transition to hollywood well uh because i'd worked with everybody san francisco is a tiny town yeah. and i worked at the asian american theater company doing like eight shows at in some capacity for about seven years eight shows a year 
exhausting. But I also did a lot of voice work and I did sketch comedy. And in sketch comedy, I also explored a lot of things. I just was feeling like I needed more challenges. Mm -hmm. So I started taking classes in LA. I had friends that were here. So I'd come down and stay for a little while and I'd take some master classes here and there. And I realized that this town was filled with amazing actors yeah yeah <laughs> because in san francisco you know you'd hear all those la actors you know right. they bad mouth everything because they're all you know working in the business and they want it they're not good right and then i came and went no 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 you see people from all over the world are gathering there and they are good mm -hmm. they happen to be doing television and film but there's also great theater yeah so i started um i joined the east west players Naturally, yeah. <laughs> it's the oldest Asian American theater company in the country. Still thriving. Still thriving. And um, at that time, Mako, who was, you know, Oscar nominated uh -huh. for Sand Pebbles and so scary, good and scary. Um, <laughs> he was still the artistic director and, and they were doing what was interestingly enough plays from our experience but also they were doing new plays but they were also doing classics mm -hmm. which is something i yearned for because i'd studied shakespeare i'd studied you know ibsen and so i was a given the opportunity to do tennessee williams like as soon as i got here with an asian with cast. an all asian cast yeah oh i was like what i get to do that too right so um and then right away i started doing television what was the first TV show? <clears throat> I think the first TV show I did was uh, the Tracy Ullman show. And I got to play somebody from New York. I worked in the post office with Julie Kavner. Uh -huh. And that was crazy because Donald from Mar from the Marlo Thomas show, uh -huh. that girl, yeah, yeah. he was the director. Okay. And the whole time, I'm. it's just like, you know, what a weird world. These people that I used to watch on TV yeah. are standing right in front of me. And I, he'd be giving me direction. I'd just be thinking, Donald. <laughs> Donald is talking to me. <laughs> I can't remember what his real name was because <laughs> I just knew his character name. But that happened a lot. Uh -huh. And I'd think, why didn't I move here sooner? Right. You'd, you know, you'd be at the Beverly Center and big celebrities would be walking by and you'd think, why didn't I move here? I mean, they're all, they're, right, they're five feet from me. Right. <laughs> so exciting. I was thrilled. And do you mem remember that first call that said, yes, we want you. Yes, we want you to be on TV. Is that, is that, was that an exciting moment for you? It was interesting because I was doing a show at the Ensemble Studio Theater, uh, 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 an adaptation of uh a play, and I was playing a dog, I think, in the show. It was... <laughs> a dog. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a short, a one-act. Who's that Russian guy, the Russian playwright? Oh, uh, don't. Big fancy guy. <laughs> a whole bunch of those. They're using, I know. <laughs> anyway, he's, uh, it, was, it was a really good play. And in San Francisco, I remember doing a... a a television show, but I was in production on a play and we were doing tech that night. And I remember telling the AD I had to leave by six because we had tech. Because <laughs> that's how we operated in San Francisco. <laughs> Apparently, New York's the same way. Uh -huh. If you're doing theater, you got to be you there. You got to be there. Right. They don't care if you're doing TV. Right. So I was doing this uh, this play and I told the director that I, you know, I got cast in, in uh, the Tracy Ellman show. 
man, I was kind of sad. I was excited, but I was sad because I'd have to turn it down. And he said, turn it down? We'll just cancel the show that night. I was What's so, wrong with you? Yeah, so the first feeling I had was, oh, man, I'm going to have to turn this down because I'm doing theater. And then I realized this, oh, this town is so different. Right. Yeah. Every, yeah, I don't think there's, No. That's funny. They operate around you. Yeah. They realize in the theater world that you need to make a living. So yeah. they oftentimes, if they don't have understudies, yeah. they just... Shut down for the night. They shut down That's for the interesting. night. interesting. And when you auditioned for that role, I'm not familiar with what you did on Tracy Ullman, but was it, was it an Asian character or was it just an actress or what was the... Well, you, know. Could it, you know, in some cases, they, they just put in the breakdowns... Uh, all ethnicities should submit. Mm-hmm. So I played her Asian American from New York yeah. with a New York accent. But um, but you didn't bring it, like an Asian no. accent thing. And so, no, because I felt like she was just an Asian American person. Right. And have there been moments where you've been asked to put it on thick? And, you know, we were talking about this earlier on the TV show. Mm-hmm. You actually like playing with accents. But mm-hmm. is there... I feel like if if the audience is is laughing with us, it's okay. Mm-hmm. If they're laughing at an Asian character because of an accent or because of a, an Asian thing, it makes me uncomfortable. And I wonder, as someone who auditions for these roles, who has to play Asian roles, quote unquote, how do you approach that? Well, I approach every character in pretty much the same way. I think of the character as fully rounded. Mm-hmm. Now, if if it's like uh, an immigrant, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense to me necessarily because I really don't know very many immigrants, even if they came here 20 years ago. Like Who my don't mom, have an accent. Huh? The, who don't have an accent. Well, no, they have accents. That's, so, that's, like my, my, mother, that's my point. Yeah. yeah. My mother, exactly. My mother yeah. was here for... A good 40 years yeah. and I was always like mom you could always take a you know a class <laughs> I'm too old <laughs> so I I think of them as people yeah so an accent is just part of the puzzle that I put together if the character is so badly written mm. that it's just a joke then I just say no I just don't want to do it mm. because I don't as an actor don't even want to play a character that's a joke. I mean, if there's a, if there's a, if I visibly, if I'm a joke, I won't do it. Mm. If I'm uh, just being there for an accent, I won't do it. But I have, what did I do? Oh, I, I was doing some showcase and um, a casting director brought me in for Santa Barbara. Remember that soap opera so, yeah, from a years yeah, ago? Yes. And I didn't know until I got there, he was, uh, he wanted me to audition for a Nicaraguan nun. <laughs> Now, I had a boyfriend from Nicaragua, right. so I could do a Nicaraguan accent, but I was very torn about whether to do it or not because uh-huh. it felt like it was politically incorrect <laughs> to be not Latina right. and play a Latina part. Yeah. But then I thought, well, I can't do this character because I'd lived in that world. Yeah. <laughs> so I did, but it was so uncomfortable. It was like a two week job uh-huh. and I shared a dressing room with a Latina actress. Uh-huh. And the whole time she was like, well, our people, our people and our <laughs> men and our this. And I'm, I didn't know how to <laughs> tell her I'm not our people. 
And I'd get to the set and, uh, you know, the Caucasian actors would look at the signs because we were supposed to be in Nicaragua and they'd say, oh, what does that sign say? And it's like, no fumar. You don't know what no fumar means? <laughs> Even with my limited Spanish, I know what that, it says no smoking. And then uh, by the end of the shoot, I'm sitting in the dressing room with the actress and she goes, well, you know, it's been really great knowing you. It's a good thing that we have um, this ability to work so many different uh, platforms because we have the Spanish, we could do, you know, Spanish television. And I said, well, I don't really speak Spanish. And she looked at me and said, well, didn't your parents speak Spanish at home? And I said, no, my mom's Japanese and my dad's Finnish. She was like, what? <laughs> so that was the last time I played that. Crossed, yeah. yeah. Couldn't cross over again. But I, I guess my point is that, you know, I, and I talked to you about this earlier, but, but you know, there still seems to be this thing in Hollywood where right. it's okay to make Asians the butt of the joke. Yes. And and you're in this world. You right. work in Hollywood. And is it something you have to fight against? Do they know, don't, you know, throw that at Amy? Or how does that get worked out? Or tell me about that. Well, I can only speak from my experience, and my experience is like when I, I couldn't even be arrested for a while in anything that was Asian because the white casting person or the white director would look at me and say, you don't look Japanese, mm -hmm. you don't look Asian. And I'd be like, well, I passed when I was in Japan. Yeah. And when I was doing the Asian American Theater Company and East West Players, apparently my people think I look like them. Right, right. <laughs> so... Uh, and it wasn't until I did All American Girl, Margaret Cho had seen me do my mother, uh -huh. which is very similar to her mother. Right. People would be like, Margaret stole your... And I'm like, well, we both have, you know, immigrant mothers, so... Right, right. <laughs> they're a little different because hers is Korean, mine's Japanese. Right. But um, she wanted me to be on the show. And I wanted to not play her mother. I wanted to play her grandmother, mm. who is even more immigrant. She's, you know, like right. so far immigrant yeah and I'm not old and I wasn't old enough to be a grandmother and I'm not Korean right but I knew that as an actor I could do it mm -hmm. and they gave me the job on uh like probation all through the pilot they kept saying you know we don't know if you're going to be able to do this the series but you're on probation right now and i'd be like well good i then it doesn't matter i'll just do what i want right i'll enjoy myself and that's where i was very because i knew the community would be watching that i needed to create a character that was a based in a reality so i was in the community i was you know using people that i knew korean older women as models i had a dialogue coach to make sure that my korean accent was appropriate and correct right i had somebody who also would do the lines in korean for me so i had to use i had a few lines that i had to say in korean mm -hmm. during the course of the show and you know what people thought i was korean hmm. i passed yeah and people thought i was old <laughs> so you know on every level i felt like as an actor i did yeah. my job i yeah. created a character and that's always my barometer is mm -hmm. it's really important for me to to represent people in the community if they have an accent i want to be sure that it's correct mm -hmm.
proper, that it's based in a person. It's just one facet of who they are, but mm-hmm. it's not everything and it's not the joke. Yeah. And it's important that the people who are writing these, um, like on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, I play a Filipina mom. And I was hoping that I could use a Filipina, because I'm good. I could do a Filipina accent. Uh-huh. Um, you know, one of the first parts I did at Asian American Theater Company was a Filipina mom. And I worked really hard on it, and I could speak some Tagalog, and it was really great. And the writer of the show called and said, um, can you do a Filipino accent? And I said, well. Uh, as a matter of as fact. As a matter of fact. You know, I was the voice of Philippine Airlines for Were six you really? years. Yes. After I did the Filipino mom, wow. I got a call in the office at the Asian American Theater Company saying they were auditioning people to do the voice of Philippine Airlines. Did they have anybody that might want to come in? Well, I'd done voice work in uh, Tokyo, but I'd never done any in in San Francisco. So I said, sure, I'll come in. I auditioned. And the executives thought that I was from Manila. They thought of that I was from this. Because your accent accent was so good. Wow. Because it wasn't just a Philip. No, it wasn't accent. a Filipino. It was a specific. Because I had a lot of Filipino friends in mm. Tokyo. There's a lot of you know. There are a lot yeah. of people from the Philippines at Sofia studying business, and I'd been to the Philippines and stayed with their families, and I had a really strong sense of who they were, and I could do not just one Filipino character accent, but I could do people like that I knew. So mm-hmm. I picked somebody who had a very slight accent, Mm -hmm. very well educated, but still had that lilt. Mm -hmm. And I did that for six years. And the executives, people in the Philippines, all thought I went to, you know, some private school in Makati. (laughs) Perfect. See? Yeah. So I just have a high bar for me Mm -hmm. that it's important that they're people and that I'm, you know, it's not just one accent for every, although I'm not good at Eastern European. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to confess right now. <laughs> the one Eastern accent. European, Italian, anything from, yeah, I'm not good. <laughs> Everything else is good, though. Everything's good. One more question mm-hmm. on this thread, and that is, I, I just lost so much respect for Steve Harvey when he <sighs> made the comments that he did recently about Asian men. And, I, you know, when I hear things like that, I just want to, you know, get on a soapbox and say, any other ethnicity you say something like that, and you don't survive it. You know, it's just not right. And and how is it that that this continues in this town and uh, in this day and age? Well, I feel as though it's like when we, you know, we were at war with Germany. They didn't put Germans in camp. Mm. <laughs> no. We were, I mean, it's just like we're such an easy target. Yeah. The Japanese Americans, in particular, uh, have such uh, well. Asian Americans, I guess, in general, have uh, have not been the people that fight back. Mm-hmm. They just take their blows. You know, it's like when Michelle says, "They go low, we go high." Well, you know, that doesn't always work. Mm. Yeah. We need to, I think, shift how we react to things. And I'm glad that we are reacting more vocally, more angrily to those kinds of things. I mean, even that 
Steve Harvey was like, all right, I'll say sorry. But, you know, you never really got a sense that he felt he did anything wrong. Right. And that's the thing that's most disturbing. Okay, if I have to say I'm sorry, I'll say I'm sorry. But I still think he doesn't get why he has to say he's sorry. You know, the Oscars last year, the same thing. People don't get why. Why are we so upset? I know. Because, you know, in their mind, we're also very successful. Yeah. We're highly educated. We're successful. We do well. Why are you bitching mm-hmm. about any of that? Yeah. And it's just the sense, I think, for me, it's, first of all, <clears throat> what's annoying is that we are dismissed. Dehumanized. Dehumanized. Invisible. Um and and if there's going to be because I remember um, when you know during the auto uh, auto industry ish problems in the was it in the nineties in the eighties in the nineties yeah. and that uh, Vincent Chin was killed in, in Detroit yeah just outside of Detroit yeah because you know these guys they the industry said well the reason we're having so many problems is the Japanese mm-hmm. the Japanese are making us lose our jobs. Mm-hmm. And now Trump is doing the same thing, you know? He's blaming every problem we have on people on the outside, anybody who's not living here, Caucasian. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's just so easy to blame other people. I'm just all over the place. No, I, I but, appreciate it because yeah. I, I, I think it's an important topic. I think it's something that we frequently... We're either dismissed yeah. or we are blamed. Yeah, and I think that we we don't want to talk about these things, and I think it's okay to talk about them because we we never solve them unless we do. Um, You are involved in a fantastic uh, uh, couple of uh, uh, sets of of stand-up comedy coming up uh, here in Los Angeles at the Japanese American National Museum. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to hear all about it. Introducing the completely redesigned Mercedes-Benz E-Class. It's everything you need it to be, and so much more. Frank Buckley Interviews is presented by the Mercedes-Benz dealers of Southern California. Visit mbsocal.com for dealer details. All right, we're back with Amy Hill, and you've got this wonderful uh, thing going on at the Japanese American National Museum here in Los Angeles, the comedy in the Asian. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you did it well. Uh, tell me all about it. Well, it's a uh, um, it's six stand-ups. Well, five stand-ups and me, uh-huh. um, and they're going to be shooting one hour uh, of our performance in six evenings and then editing it into six one-hour specials that already have a distributor. Oh, fantastic. I know. I didn't know that part of it. Where where is that going? Well, we don't know where it's going. The distributor is buying them and then taking them somewhere. Terrific. I think their last shows were on Showtime, Okay, perhaps, something like that. So let's hope it it shows up so that if you can't make it to the shows, we'll be able to see it on TV. Oh, yes. and tell me, uh, who are the comedians? They're great. They're all stand-ups, as I said earlier. Uh, Paul Kim, I guess he's, uh, you know, I don't even go to stand-up shows. It's terrible. Because uh-huh. I have a 16-year-old. I stay home. I have one, too. Oh, my God. We can oh, talk later about exactly. that. Uh, Paul Kim, he's at the 
Laugh Factory. He's Korean American, and he uh, was the founder of Collaboration. Atsuko Okatsuka. Uh huh. I have actually seen her, and she's wonderful. She's very irreverent, and you know what? She comes from Japan, and she's got a great story. And she's got, you know, what I love is when stand-ups have their own voice, and they come like you're surprised by the things that they talk yes. about. Um, so she's great. And we have um, Kevin Yee. Now, I've also been on stage with him before when I was hosting something. And he is he was in a boy group. And he's an old Broadway chorus guy. He's funny and he's also wacky and crazy. Okay. And then we have um, Joey Gila. He's Filipino and he was in the Filipino Kings of Comedy Tour. Okay. So, you know, there's got to be some... Uh, Filipino stuff in there, and that's always funny. Filipinos are hilarious. By the way, Filipino, can you do that Philippine Air <laughs> Airlines voice for me right yes. now? Yes, Philippine Airlines, the only way to fly. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. To fly. To fly. <laughs> uh, and Robin Tran, who is a transgender Vietnamese American, who's got a story, I'm sure, and has her own take on the world. Again, I'm excited to see her. And then there's me. Me. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, uh, with people, I think, who are not of the Asian-American community will sometimes lump everybody in together, right? It's, oh, you're Asian-American, so give me the Asian-American humor. I'm, I'm not going to do that, but tell me, is there a common thread among Asian-American humorists or comedians that is different from Caucasian or... African-American or Latino or something else? Well, I think that, you know, any good stand-up is going to be speaking about their lives. And their lives, if they are Asian-American, are going to include some kind of Asian-American perspective on something, whether mm -hmm. they're, it's their parents. Every I think every stand-up does something about their parents or their family. Right. So there's going to be something in there. Um, and you're doing a set. Right? I'm doing a set, yeah. And you're not a stand-up comedian, haven't been. No, but I've done solo shows as a so throw something at me. Actor, can you? I mean, is that wrong to say to someone? Hey, tell me a joke. Yeah, because I don't do jokes. Okay, I'm more you observational, do more observational story stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, but I'm doing a lot of writing and editing and making paring down because my storytelling is usually long and drawn out mm -hmm. and I'm told I have to shorten those little stories <laughs> they're interesting my director says fascinating but too long <laughs> so not funny at I'm a certain shortening point shortening them uh but you know it's I'm talking about my daughter she's 16 and she's you know driving me crazy I'm talking about um my experiences in Hollywood because you know I've done a lot I've yeah. got a lot of credits yeah and I'm still uh you know, I get to the set and they're always like, a background? And I'm like, no, I'm a regular in the show. Wow. Oh, yes. Are you kidding me? No, I did a show, a pilot of several years ago with uh, John Lovitz. And I got to the stage of the studio and I'm at the security guard. And I said, uh, you know, I'm checking in. And he goes, okay, you're going to be parking, parking in the north lot, which is like, 10 minute walk and right. I said no I, I'm a regular I need to be parked next to the stage and he yeah. goes well we don't have parking they don't have you next to the stage and I said well I'm not I'm not parking in the north lot right because because yeah so he goes all right well I'm gonna might get fired but I'll give you this this spot and he gives me a spot next to the stage and I get into the uh, onto the set and I'm telling everybody all of the other actors I'm like the guy wants me to park in the north lot and they look at me and they say, 
we all parked in the north lot. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, okay. That Amy Hill, yeah. she's so difficult to work so with. difficult. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, but, you know, those are the kind of things that happen in Hollywood. Yeah. Are you nervous about doing stand-up? Totally. But, you know, the only way I can make it work for me is just work hard. Yeah. Isn't that what we do? That's, that's what Asian Americans do. That's what we do. <laughs> and we that's, work hard. That's what you've been doing, and you've been killing it and succeeding. Uh, and gosh, what a pleasure this has been uh, to chat with you. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Amy Hill. If you're interested in seeing her in person, go to the link on my podcast page, which is ktla.com slash Frank Buckley interviews, and I'll send you to the event page at the Japanese American National Museum. By the way, the museum just opened an amazing new exhibition titled Instructions to All Persons, Reflections on Executive Order 9066. It commemorates the 75th anniversary of President Franklin Roosevelt's signing of Executive Order 9066, which led to the unlawful incarceration of 120,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry during World War II. It includes the original Executive Order 9066, as well as a Presidential Proclamation 2537, which was a precursor document that required anyone from Germany, Italy, or Japan to register with the U.S. Department of Justice. I'm a huge supporter of the Japanese American National Museum, and if you are a fellow Southern California resident or if you're visiting downtown L.A., I highly encourage you to visit the museum. In fact, you might consider visiting the museum in the afternoon, grabbing a bite to eat in Little Tokyo, and then coming back to see Amy perform at 7.30 this Sunday evening. As always, we are grateful when you subscribe to the podcast or you tell your friends about us on social media. Uh, we're Frank Buckley Interviews. And on Twitter and Instagram, I go by Frank Buckley TV. And there's a Frank Buckley page on Facebook. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'll see you on TV. Frank Buckley Interviews is presented by the Mercedes-Benz Dealers of Southern California. Visit mbsocal.com for dealer details.